You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. The widening federal deficit is starting to weigh on bond investors who fear the current path of fiscal policy will significantly increase the supply of Treasury securities for the foreseeable future. Weak political appetite for spending cuts or tax increases is combining with rising interest rates to keep the deficit high in the near term, but demographic changes will add to the longer-term difficulty in getting the budget under control. On today's episode, we talk with Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, about how to understand the federal government's 2023 fiscal year and the most important things shaping the budget trajectory going forward. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. But first, a quick market update. The bond market rallied in the second half of this week after Fed Governor Chris Waller said rate cuts would be appropriate if inflation continued to improve for the next few months. Third quarter core PCE inflation was also revised slightly lower from 2.4% to 2.3%. Two-year Treasury yields fell below 4.65% for the first time since July, and tens fell below 4.25% for the first time since September. We think the rally is slightly overbought right now and yields will drift higher before the November employment report kicks off a busy week of tradable events on December 8th. Markets are currently pricing in almost 100 basis points of rate cuts in 2024. The October PCE report was the highlight during an otherwise light data calendar the last two weeks. PCE inflation came in mostly as expected, reinforcing market expectations that Fed rate hikes are over for this cycle. Right before Thanksgiving, durable goods orders came in weaker than expected, but the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model is estimating 2.1% growth with the available data. 20-year Treasury auction showed solid demand, an encouraging sign after the 30-year auction tailed by more than 5 basis points. This week, the auctions for two-year, five-year, and seven-year notes had mixed results, giving no clear sign yet of how well markets are able to absorb the increased auction sizes announced November 1st. A ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was extended by a couple days this week to allow more hostages to be freed. But the conflict's impacts on U.S. financial markets have been relatively muted since the initial bond market rally following Hamas's invasion of Israel on October 7th. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil is almost $8 lower since the fighting began. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Mark Goldwine. Our guest today is Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Our topic today is the federal deficit, the most important dynamics driving the federal budget balance in the near term, but also how to think about the longer term trajectory. So the deficit came in at nearly $2 trillion when adjusting for the student loan forgiveness that never happened uh, for the fiscal year ending last September. And that was up from roughly $1 trillion the year before. Mark, what were the primary drivers for that rise in the deficit in the most recent fiscal year, especially when the pandemic stimulus bills were more than two years ago? Right. So the real story here is that 2022 was actually a very favorable year. That $1 trillion deficit 
was artificially low because we had huge surge in revenue, mainly from inflation, which inflation boosts your taxable income. Uh, the tax code adjusts, but it's on a lag. So mainly from inflation and from a one-time surge in capital gains. Um, remove that one-time surge in capital gains, let the tax code catch up for inflation, and we would already have something like a $1.7, $1.8 trillion deficit. The last little bit of the increase from $1 trillion to $2 trillion is mainly higher interest costs and expanded use of something called the employee retention credit, which was actually designed to be a COVID relief measure, but most people figured out about it after the fact. And there's a whole cottage industry of folks that are probably illegally trying to collect that credit. So that's really interesting, uh, this idea that the most recent fiscal year was kind of a reversion to, uh, I'm not going to call it normalcy, but it's that the prior years were kind of noisy, uh, an adjustment during the pandemic, um, either inflation or this kind of overheating of the economy. And so 2023 actually is more representative of uh, kind of what our current budgetary trends are um, instead of this weird spike. That's exactly right. Two trillion is much closer to the new normal than one trillion is. And that is a completely unsustainable new normal. So I, I think those are some interesting points, just the idea that this is a, a normalization. Um, but I often find that a lot of the media commentary on the federal budget or even outside the media, just general analysts, um, it boils down to partisan talking points, essentially assigning blame to one party or the other. And this can make people overlook some of the finer points. So do you think there's anything big that's being under-recognized in the general commentary compared to what you hear out there for the finger pointing, the, the big cause and effect? What is being underappreciated here? It's absolutely true that both parties have blame here because they keep passing tax cuts and spending increases, sometimes on a partisan basis, sometimes on a bipartisan basis. But I think what a lot of people miss is that underlying all of this fiscal irresponsibility, we have government programs that were created in 1935 and 1965 that are continuing to grow rapidly and really eating up the rest of the budget. And I'm referring, of course, to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Those three programs will explain about 85% of spending growth over the next decade. It's interesting that you bring that up because one thing I know that did change a good bit um, for this most recent fiscal year was the cost of living adjustment, the COLA uh, for Social Security, because it reflected inflation being so high in 2022. When that uh, $2 trillion deficit number is quoted, um, are higher Social Security payments reflected in that budget statement, or is it being funded separately by payroll taxes uh, instead of the general federal revenues? This is a great question. So Social Security is both a self-finance program run out, of the, run out of the Social Security Trust Fund where the payroll tax goes in, the benefits go out, but it's also part of the overall federal budget. And so when we talk about a $2 trillion deficit, that is inclusive of Social Security's deficit. And it is running a deficit now, by the way, because it's pulling out from its trust fund. So when people talk then about, um, you know, in 10 years, Social Security is going to uh, go bankrupt it's already paying out more than it's taking in, but there is a kind of cash set aside that it's drawing down on, or, or how do we think about that accounting? So from about 1990 to 2010, Social Security payroll taxes more than covered benefits. And so the extra, it's sort of set aside in this trust fund. The trust fund then grows with inflation. In reality, this is partially an accounting mechanism because the rest of government could use the money. But now the rest of the government is paying it back. You know, benefits exceed revenue. 
every year there's pulling from the trust fund to make up the difference. And we can keep doing that for about the next decade. At that point, though, the trust fund runs out and revenue will be about a quarter short of benefits, meaning that all benefits without change would have to be cut across the board by about 23%. I want to get into um, the the kind of future budget trajectory a little bit later, but for now, um, staying on that that most recent fiscal year, two of the biggest pieces of legislation passed you know, in the last couple of years were the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Do we see evidence of, the, of, of that legislation in the budget yet, or is it more going to be in the future? Those pieces of legislation, while they were certainly meaningful, their effect in any given year is pretty small. Those pieces of legislation spend out over 10 years plus. They're not massive, and they take time to phase in. So yes, 2023 included a little bit of spending from CHIPS and Inflation Reduction Act and bipartisan infrastructure. It also included a little bit of revenue from those, but it, it wasn't a large share of the deficit. The deficit would still be probably 1.9 something trillion, even without those bills. The way I understand um, some of that government support for green energy investment is that they're tax credits. And so in, in that uh, way, some in private investment that is happening um, that's going tax free, we won't really see it in the budget until taxes are due because they won't be paid. Is that a fair way to think about it? That sometimes tax credits, even though they have the same effect on the ledger as subsidies, they can show up in our spending data a little bit later. That's right. I mean, so but look, there's a very blurry line between taxes and spending. And I think something else people miss when they look at the budget is we look at the spending growth and we see that revenue doesn't keep up. But we don't realize that part of the reason revenue isn't keeping up is there's actually a lot of spending in the tax code that's growing. And energy credits is a bit of it. But largely it's in the healthcare space where we have huge tax subsidies for employer provided health care. We have huge tax subsidies as well for investments, for retirement savings, for capital gains. And those are growing over time and eroding our tax base. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it uh, because we um, can think of fiscal stimulus as just meaning the government handing out checks or giving subsidies in, in some way, but it can also just be tax credits. And so right now in the last year, do you feel like there is an implied fiscal stimulus going on just because the budget deficit um, is getting bigger, right? Doesn't that mean that there's stimulus because the government is taking in less than they're giving out? Yeah, there's definitely some amount of extra fiscal stimulus as a result of this $2 trillion deficit. But it is important to keep in mind that relative to the prior year, a lot of this is changes in capital gains and taxes on high earners. And so that's not a particularly high multiplier form of stimulus. Um, in other words, when people that you know have millions of dollars are, are taxed a little bit more, a little bit less, it doesn't affect their spending as much as people that you know, make $40,000 a year. So yes, it is more stimulative. In particular, the higher social security benefits um, from the COLA is stimulative. But on net, it's not dollar for dollar stimulative the same way that something like COVID relief was. Um, that was much more focused on people that actually were going to spend the money. So turning to the future now, um, when you and others at CRFB think about modeling future budget balances, what are some of the important assumptions you think are driving the fiscal trajectory when there can be so much uncertainty about the future? Because obviously the political environment is highly variable and difficult to predict, but you still have to make a baseline projection. So is it 
demographics, higher interest rates on our debt. Give us an idea of what is going into that baseline thinking. It's all of the above. Look, the three major threats, maybe the four major threats to the budget going forward are demographics. We're, we're getting older and increasing share of our population is going to be in their 60s, 70s and 80s collecting benefits, but not paying taxes. That's number one. Number two, rising healthcare costs. Healthcare costs tend to rise faster than inflation, faster than GDP, and that's blowing up the cost of Medicare and Medicaid. Number three, rising interest costs. For the last 15 years, really benefited from very low interest rates. That's over now. We're paying over 5% on the typical uh, treasury bond, and we're paying that interest on a lot more debt. And so, you know, if rates stay where they are now, within two years, interest spending will exceed defense and Medicare to become the second largest spending program. And then lastly, Congress, Congress and the president that keep over and over again, cutting taxes and increasing spending. And I, I think our best guess is they're going to do it again when um, the, the tax cuts expire at the end of 2025. And they're probably going to do it again other times. And so I think those are probably our, our biggest threats to the budget going forward. The Penn-Wharton budget model recently published an estimate that if the federal budget were to go on at this current pace, debt dynamics would, quote, unravel, as they described it. Now, I know this is an estimate from an institution that is not your own, but do you agree with this conclusion that the U.S. debt will be an irreversible problem in 20 years? Or, or what's your best guess for when we reach the point of no return for the national debt? I don't think there's a point of no return because I think the United States is the, is the greatest economy in the history of the universe, the known universe, uh, where the world's reserve currency, we print in our own money. I think there always is a possible return, but there's a point that that return gets incredibly painful. And uh, Penn Wharton's estimates that that starts taking place in 20, 25 years, I think is definitely a plausible one. We did our own illustration where we first assumed interest rates stay at their current very high levels. And that's a big assumption because they may come down. And then we assumed that further adding to the debt pushes up interest rates and pushes down economic growth through what's called economic crowd out. If all of that happens, we sort of get to this situation with a similar type of hockey stick debt level in 20 to 30 years that Penn Wharton does. It starts to look like debt is rising, then it's rising quickly, then it's rising rapidly. And sometime in the 2050s or 2060s, it's rising so fast that it's hard to see how one could bring it down. I want to dig a little bit more into that because I still remember right after the financial crisis, our stimulus was, of course, a lot smaller than the stimulus we had during the pandemic. There was a lot of alarm about the size of U.S. deficits that were sustainable, um, a lot of calls for austerity. But most of the warning signs in that decade after the financial crisis, runaway inflation or rapidly rising interest rates, didn't come to pass. So I'm trying to wrap my head around at what point exactly the national debt becomes harmful to the economy. So you talked about crowding out. Ten-year Treasury yields are at 4.5% as we record this, but that's pretty comparable to where they were uh, about 20 years ago. And our economy then was not in any kind of big depression with no private investment. So where does this economic pain you're talking about come from and at what point? Japan, for example, has a much larger level of debt as a share of its GDP, but seems to be doing okay. Drawing the question of whether Japan has really been chugging along okay, because they've had essentially no economic growth for a quarter century now. So I wouldn't exactly want to emulate Japan. I think the answer is we always feel the pain of the burden of debt. It comes in the form of slower income growth. It comes in the form of interest rates that are higher than they otherwise would be. 
And when we make rapid changes to the deficit, as we did during COVID, it comes in the form of higher inflation. And so we always feel the pain of higher deficits and debt, but usually it's a very subtle feeling. That high inflation is the exception. Usually it's a very subtle feeling. The risk on the horizon is if interest rates do in fact stay this high and then grow with the debt, and that's a big if, but if they do, we may go from the point where debt is a nuisance on our economic growth to one where there becomes some type of catastrophe. That's sort of the the scenario that the Penn Wharton folks were, were warning about. So long as the interest rate was below our economic growth rate, you know, we talk about RNG, the interest rate being below the growth rate, there was this feeling that we could correct things and we could always make debt sustainable if we wanted to. Yes, debt was growing because we were borrowing a lot, because we were keeping taxes low and keeping spending high. But we could always kind of pull back because that economic growth would kind of wipe out our past debt. Now we're in the opposite scenario where the interest rate is above the growth rate. And if it stays there, things can start to get unhinged. I know in those R R versus G models, there are a lot of different uh, measurements. It's just meant to be kind of a, a general concept. But for uh, the period before the pandemic, when growth was, I don't know, on trend, let's say 2%, interest rates were higher than that for a period in the 90s and in the 80s. Was debt on an unsustainable trajectory then? Well, in the 90s, the interest rates were very high, and people were certainly feeling that in meaningful ways in the in the private sector. But our debt load was very low, and we were running pretty close to balanced budgets. In fact, we got to balanced budget, which meant we were running what we call primary surpluses. We were raising enough revenue to not only pay for our current spending, but to cover most or all of the interest. And that meant that even with the interest rate above the growth rate, things were okay. The issue now is we're running primary deficits, pretty large ones, in fact. Last year, the primary deficit was something like 4.5% of GDP. Going forward, it looks like we're going to be 3% plus per year. So the issue is you can always have strong enough policy to counteract your high interest rates, but we are so far away from that that it's hard to imagine us getting there. And to get there, we would need to make some pretty serious corrections to our fiscal situation. Some people make the argument that a government surplus would mean a counterpart of a deficit in the private sector. And the private sector can be much more sensitive to fluctuations in the business cycle compared to the government. Of course, thrown into that simplified accounting is also that foreign capital flows can lead to deficits in both. But in any case, without defending the size of our current big deficit, is there an argument to be made that having a relatively smaller government budget deficit each year is preferred to having a public sector surplus? I don't think that budget surplus is really a, a plausible outcome. You know, I think that what we need is is to eventually move towards what I said as a primary surplus so that our revenue is covering our current expenditures. And then we either need to get the growth rate fast enough that our existing debt is eroding or we need to do a little bit further. There's no particular reason that a balanced budget is, is kind of economically magic versus borrowing a dollar or saving a dollar. With all that said, the idea that these deficits are creating surpluses in the private sector kind of gets the causality a bit backwards. The government deficit is driven mainly by our choices, our choices of how much to spend and how much to raise. Um, Of course, we want to make sure that there is a dynamic financial market. Yeah, paying off the debt would be a really bad idea. But luckily, that is not something I have any concern is going to happen anytime in the next 100 years. 
You mentioned a little bit earlier about the the biggest contributions to the federal budget, and I think um, this is something that can surprise a lot of people. Really, what the uh, the biggest contributions are, as far as I understand it, it's it's Social Security, Medicare, and defense spending. Do you think that a lot of the budget fights that we we see in Washington, when there's the threat of a shutdown, the threat of uh, you know surpassing the debt ceiling? Are they focused on making a big difference to the budget trajectory or are these fights usually just political grandstanding over, you know, a relatively small portion of discretionary spending? Uh, Yeah, to your point, the largest three government programs are Social Security, Medicare and Defense. The three most popular programs for people to say they will not touch are Social Security, Medicare and Defense. That's a problem. If you were to try to balance the budget without touching those three programs plus veteran spending, you'd have to cut everything else by 75%. And yet most of our conversation has been about the non-defense discretionary portion of the budget, which is about, I don't know, 12% of the total. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to bring appropriations under control. When we have not had caps, the appropriators just go wild. And sometimes they've increased spending by six, eight, 9% per year. That is not sustainable. And so things like the Fiscal Responsibility Act that put caps on, on those appropriations, those are a good idea. But we cannot solve this looking at 12% of the budget. And now that we've addressed that 12%, we need to move on to the other 88%, plus the revenue side, which definitely doesn't get enough, uh, enough talk. Um, the truth is we can afford more spending if we're willing to raise more revenue. And we need to have that conversation as well. I think that's really interesting to put into perspective um, because, yeah, the, the 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 kind of portion of the budget that people are usually fighting about seems, um, I'm not going to call it not to- totally trivial, but it is not going to really solve the problem per se. Um, so just to wrap things up then, what do you see as the most likely, politically speaking, change to improve the deficit when uh, these kind of political non-starters are the biggest contributions to the budget where do you see, you know, you, you might have your ideal wish list, and then there is what you plausibly see getting through a gridlocked Congress. Let me end with a note of optimism. From 2015, the beginning of 2022, mostly all Congress and president, multiple presidents did, was add to the debt. They passed tax cut after tax cut and spend increase after spending increase, and they didn't even ask themselves the question, how will we pay for it? That changed with the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act was not perfect ended up costing more than we thought it would, but it was designed with fiscal responsibility in mind. There was enough revenue and health savings to try to pay for the spending. We then built on that with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which for the first time since 2011, instated new discretionary spending caps to make sure that there were limits on the appropriators. We need to keep building on that momentum. And I think the next best opportunity is a fiscal commission. We saw a bipartisan House bill that called for a broad fiscal commission. There's a bipartisan Senate bill as well, just out calling for a bipartisan fiscal commission. Commissions in the past have been successful to help us restore social security solvency and make our military more efficient, improve national security, come up with new ideas to fix the tax code. And in 2010, the Simpson-Bowles Commission helped drive the conversation on fiscal policy for subsequent three years, almost led to, on three different occasions, to high-level agreement between the president and the Speaker of the House of opposite parties on a grand bargain for the debt. Commissions can make a difference. There's no guarantee, but I think that's our next best bet. And that commission needs to look at all areas of the budget, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense, non-defense, student debt, farm subsidies, 
and needs to look at the tax code, tax breaks, new forms of revenue, rates, corporate, individual, consumption, needs to look at everything and see what we can come up with. Mark Goldwine, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That was Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. I think Mark's point that the 2023 deficit is best thought of as budget normalization instead of being caused by new fiscal policy really drives home how ingrained big federal deficits are right now. Also, how important it is to keep in mind that the typical budget fights in Washington will do little to shift the trajectory compared with more aggressive changes. The next couple weeks will be very busy for the macro economy and fixed income investors. The November employment report, released December 8th, will show whether weakness in the October report was primarily from the impacts of striking workers. Also on the 8th, financial markets will closely watch the University of Michigan survey's inflation expectations components after the November survey showed the highest long-term expectations in more than 10 years. The following week, the November CPI will be released the day before the FOMC announces its latest policy decision. With the pre-meeting silent period beginning at the end of this week, Fed officials will be hamstrung to change market expectations for the Fed funds rate to remain unchanged. The dot plot and summary of economic projections will give important clues for where the Fed sees the economy heading and the extent of possible rate cuts in 2024. During the week of December 11th, Treasury auctions for the 3-year note, 10-year note, and 30-year bond will give important status checks of how well the market is accommodating higher Treasury issuance. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.